When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Justice demands that. So let's talk about justice, son. And that's chapter 42. I love how he begins it, like the others, with a perception of a worry on his son's part. I perceive you're still worried about this, that you can't understand. And I love how he puts it. For you do try to suppose that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned to a state of misery. He could have just said, you kind of think that it's not fair that God would punish sinners, do you? But I love it. He says, you try to suppose. Every once in a while, my wife will say something like, I was trying to wonder about, and I always laugh and, and call her on it. Because I think she's either trying to say, I was wondering about, or I was trying to understand such and such. But by putting the two together, when she says, I was trying to wonder, I always laugh and go, See, that's, you're just so intelligent. You can't wonder about things. I mean, you try. I try to wonder, but dang it, I just know too much. I, I just know automatically the way things are. What would it be like to be able to just wonder about stuff? Hmm. It's, the, it's the burden of omniscience, I guess. And she'd always roll her eyes and go, okay, I was wondering about. Well, in, in a similar vein, here's Corianton, who knows better but is trying to suppose. It's like down deep. Yeah, it, it, it is fair. It is just that sinners are punished. The law of the harvest really does make sense. I mean, all that resting of scripture to try to say that wickedness is happiness when it never is. I know, but I'm trying to suppose it because it sounds so good to the natural man. So easy on the ears. But that's the question on his mind. You see why it would lead to the kind of sexual sin he was guilty of in 39? In 40, well, if I'm a BC saint and I get the first resurrection anyway, and that's happiness, then hey, live it up. Or 41, if restoration means that we get to be happy because God is loving and, and merciful, then no need to worry about what I've done. And in this case, well, it wouldn't be fair of God to punish sinners, especially since he claims to be a merciful God. That's what dad keeps talking about. So it would be very unjust of him to consign sinners to a state of misery. This chapter, chapter 42, is filled with talk of justice and mercy. The word justice or just or injustice appears 19 times in this chapter. And mercy or merciful shows up 17 times. It's all over the place. And it's one of the best examples of contraries you'll find in Scripture. Which was Jesus, just or merciful? The answer is yes. Like the woman taken in adultery, what's he say to her? Neither do I condemn thee, that's mercy. Go and sin no more, that's justice. It's amazing how he balances that. 
The Pharisees that brought her to him thought that those were mutually exclusive traits. They didn't understand that contraries, that paradoxes were supposed to be forced to maintain equilibrium. You have to bring them together. They assumed he's either going to be all justice. The law says stoner, then stoner. And then we'll condemn him for his lack of mercy. Or he'll be all merciful. Oh, don't, don't stone her. Be forgiving. In which case, we'll accuse him of having no justice, of not caring about the law. Darned if you do, darned if you don't. Perfect. And, as always, perfect Jesus splits the middle. Not by avoiding both extremes, but by gathering the two of them together and joining them in a higher unifying principle, namely his own atonement. It's what allows him to say, neither do I condemn thee, without condoning sin. And at the same time, being able to say, go and sin no more, without closing off her opportunities to repent. It's amazing what he does there. He's proven contraries. And that's what 42 is after as well. That's why you see justice and mercy mentioned so many times together here. The real question is, how can God be both? How can we be both? Just and merciful. Well, this chapter is going to help us understand. Verse 2, I'll explain this thing unto thee. Well, thank you, Alma. We need all the help we can get. Now, the key verse in this chapter that we're building up to is verse 24. We mentioned this earlier in our discussion of Alma 34 about the arm wrestle that I used to do with my seminary students. The big buff boy and a slight and small girl. Well, in an arm wrestle, the forces of mercy are doomed, personified by the girl. In verse 24, that's at least the personification that Alma has in mind, because he genders them. Behold, justice exerciseth all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own. So that's what we're after. How can you do both? How can justice still exercise his demands while mercy can still claim all that belongs to her? I mean, is it just a tie? Does neither party win? Well, somehow both parties win. And more importantly, we win through the grace of God. We can be saved both by his justice and by his mercy, working in tandem. Because either one on its own would leave us outside of that saving embrace either because of condemnation or because of complacency. How do we strike the middle? Well, we strike it through the atonement. Someone has to intercede. I would come in and put my hands on top of my students, saying, I'm going to help determine the outcome of this arm wrestling match. Remember Amulek's phrase, the bowels of mercy can overpower justice. That's slightly gendered too. Speaking of those bowels of mercy, that seems to be more of a feeling. Whereas justice is often seen as cold and clinical logic. The mind and the heart are contraries as well. And those are often gendered, male, mind, and female heart. We'll ask the Lord in section 8 which he prefers, and he'll say, yes. Revelation is the contraries being proven of mind and heart. You have to think with both. You have to decide with both. But for the sake of sinners, like Corianton, like Alma the Younger, like me and like you, there has to be a way for mercy to overpower justice without robbing him. Allowing justice to exercise his demands while mercy still can claim all that belongs to her, which is us. We want mercy to claim us. 
but not at justice's expense. Now, how on earth is that possible? Go back to the beginning of this chapter. And he's going to explain this by reviewing the fall and then teaching the plan of redemption. We've seen this so many times in the Book of Mormon. The sons of Mosiah, every time they taught Lamanites, it was all about creation, fall, atonement, right? Well, here to understand this, you've got to know fall to make sense of redemption. So from verse 2 to about verse 12 is Alma's review of the fall. We see some interesting details. Verse 2, I will explain this thing unto thee. For behold, after the Lord God sent our first parents forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence they were taken, yea, he drew out the man. I love the two different phrases he used. He sent them out. And he drew them out. The sent out seems more negative, the downward direction of the fall. The drawn out seems more positive, the forward dimension of the fall. The direction of the fall was twofold, right? That vector was both downward and forward. It was a step out of God's presence, but a step forward along the path. That's why we consider it a fortunate fall. Still a fall, yes, downward, but a fortunate one, forward. Sent out, you must leave, but drawn out, come and learn of me here. Things that you would never learn still in my presence. Sent out is the concept of probationary state. The drawn out is the sense of preparatory state. And we'll see both of those words side by side in this chapter, just like we saw them together back in chapter 12 of Alma. Again, same person teaching. I also love the fact that he said that they were sent out or drawn out to till the ground from whence they were taken. Alma's been talking a lot about seeds and fruit and growing things lately, hasn't he? The law of the harvest is the law of restoration after all. And I love that part of the purpose of this mortal life is to till the ground from whence they were taken. Kind of an ashes to ashes and dust to dust. If we were made from the dust of the earth, Symbolically speaking, well, the rest of our life, we need to wrestle with that nature. We need to grapple with the ground that we're made of. Recognize our fallen nature and begin to till it, to pull out the rocks and pluck out the weeds, to dig and dung, get ourselves ready for divine planting. I love that the gardener of Eden makes gardeners of all of us. And what are we trying to till ourselves, our own fallen soil? Well, he places at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the tree of life. Remember, this is the question that Alma answers back in chapter 12. That lesson is a parallel one to this one. And what are cherubim and the flaming sword doing here? Keeping us from eating the fruit of the tree of life prematurely keeping us from short-circuiting the space that we've been given to prepare to meet God. Otherwise, we would live forever in our sins. That's the law of the harvest. That's the law of restoration, right? You see how chapter 40 and 41 are coming together now into 42? There has to be spaced a time granted between death and the resurrection, between accountability and consequence. There's got to be a semester, right? We've got to have some time to learn in this class. So cherubim and the flame and sword keep us from eating this fruit and then eating the second fruit really fast. Not having learned to digest the first fruit and deal with the aftermath. And it keeps us from thinking that we can just jump from one to the other, like this misconception that Alma is trying to clarify back in 41. 
thinking that wickedness is happiness. No, the cherubim and the flaming sword are there to cure us of that misconception. Verse 4, and thus we see, so here's his takeaway, there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. That's what makes life a time of learning. It's what gives us a chance to educate our desires, develop good taste buds. Verse 5, Behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, so if cherubim and the flaming sword hadn't been there, he would have lived forever, to which we could add, in his sins, according to the word of God. Why? Because he'd have no space, no time to repent. And also the word of God would have been void and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. Because the whole plan of salvation was, let's give them a place to learn and grow and develop. That's what mortality will be for. Short-circuiting by jumping from one tree to the other shoots the entire plan in the foot. Verse 6, It was appointed unto man to die. Therefore, as they were cut off from the tree of life, they should be cut off from the face of the earth. In that way, man became lost forever. Yea, they became fallen man. Being cut off from the tree of life, that's spiritual death. Being cut off from the face of the earth, that's physical death. So these two deaths are now upon us. Verse 7, now ye see by this that our first parents were cut off both temporally, there's the physical death, and spiritually, there's the spiritual death from the presence of the Lord. Thus we see they became subjects to follow after their own will. You're now made of fallen element, that's going to pull you in one direction, and you're going to be outside of the presence of God that probably would have overpoweringly pulled us in the other. Now we really do have choices to make. Now behold, it was not expedient that man should be reclaimed from this temporal death, at least not yet, for that would destroy the great plan of happiness. We've got to have this space, right? You need a semester to keep studying the material. Verse 9, Therefore, as the soul could never die, and the fall had brought upon all mankind a spiritual death as well as a temporal, that is, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord, it was expedient that mankind should be reclaimed from this spiritual death. So since we are eternal beings, we've got to do something with that spirit, right? It's going to die and be separated from its body. Well, we can fix that with a resurrection. But there's got to be some way to reclaim it from spiritual death, or it'll simply go on living outside of God's presence eternally. And that's not the plan. That was never God's hope. So in 10, as they became carnal, sensual, and devilish, that's the bad news, were that by nature, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare, to change our nature. It became a preparatory state. That's why we would need to be born again. Put off the natural man, no longer be carnal, sensual, and devilish. Reconcile our will. Retrain ourselves so that we have righteous reflexes. All that wax on and wax off and paint the fence and paint the house and sand the floor and everything else that Miyagi had Danya-san learn to do. Remember, he's not paying Miyagi for karate lessons. He's being trained in the process. That's what makes this life less of a probationary and more of a preparatory state. I love how he makes that transition in that verse. 11, now remember my son, if it were not for the plan of redemption, laying it aside. So without this, what would happen? As soon as they were dead, their souls were miserable, cut off from the presence of the Lord. There would be nothing but that weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that we talked about in chapter 41. Because that's what all of us deserve. Awful, fearful looking, well, if we didn't know there was a plan of redemption, if we laid it aside, then we'd all have that scared anticipation. We'd all have those looks of fear on our faces instead of rest and peace and happiness. It's not that one party didn't sin. 
And that's what assured them happiness. No, we're all in this sinking ship. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all carnal, sensual, and devilish. But one group knows the plan and the other doesn't. One group lives according to the plan. They repent and the other doesn't. One group plucks out the weeds and the other just lets them grow. Verse 12, Now there was no means to reclaim man from this fallen state, which man had brought upon himself because of his own disobedience. So without a plan, the plan of redemption, there would have been no way to overcome this. And if we stopped there with Alma's understanding of the fall, then it's bad news for everybody. There's no hope. The law of restoration can only go against us. We'll never grow up to be anything different than what we've always been. And what we've been is carnal, sensual, and devilish. However, the chapter doesn't end here. And from verse 13 all the way to verse 26, he shifts from teaching the fall to teaching the atonement, the plan of redemption. And it's amazing what he says. Verse 13, according to justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state. Uh, that is, this preparatory state. For except it were for these conditions, mercy could not take effect, except it should destroy the work of justice. And it can't do that. The work of justice could not be destroyed. Otherwise, God would cease to be God. See that God's kind of between a rock and a hard place here? I want to be merciful to my children, but not at the expense of justice. I have to be both. This was taught in the lectures on faith. There are certain attributes of deity that he has to possess for us to be able to confidently exercise faith in him. If I don't have faith that God is a God of justice, I can't trust him then. Is he just going to change the rules on me at some point? Is he going to play favorites? I did everything you asked, and then all of a sudden, nah, you're not in. That's that double predestination that we talked about in Alma 31. Sorry, you're just condemned to damnation. It's not your fault, or maybe it is, I don't know. I just decided, willy-nilly. Just trust my omniscience. Well, I, I, yeah, I'd like to trust your omniscience, but is there any justice in this at all? Is there any rhyme or reason? No, to exercise faith in God, saving faith, I have to be able to trust him. I don't get on a plane banking on the pilot's mercy. I get on a plane assured of the justice of aerodynamics. This is starting to sound like an Elder Uthdorf talk. But because of justice, the laws of aerodynamics, the shape of the wing, air pressures and lift and drag and thrust and all these kinds of things that he knows way better than I do, the plane has to stay up. It's required to. President Nelson has described medicine in those terms. Terms of justice, not of mercy. That once he learned what the laws that govern the human heart were, and if he kept himself within those laws, then the heart had to follow its own rules. Heart transplants, heart surgeries had to be successful if we followed the rules that the heart has for itself. It's not the doctor's mercy I'm trusting in. It's the doctor's justice, or at least the human body, nature's laws of justice. We sometimes think that justice is the enemy and I'll admit, when I'm guilty of something, I, yeah, I don't want life to be fair. But when I'm the victim of something, then I do want it to be. And like I said, in so many areas of the natural world, we want the world to follow its natural laws. They're predictable. They're understandable. We can work within them. And the same is true of the laws of God. Honestly, at the end of the day, we are saved as much by God's justice as by his mercy. When Christ intercedes and pays our debts and takes our place, and suffers our sins, 
It would be unjust of God not to accept that. The uttermost farthing has been paid. And it's not like God is exacting that purchase price out of anger or vengeance. It's simply in order to maintain his divine justice to prove to all of his children, to prove to creation itself that he can be trusted. I am grateful for God's justice. I'm just incredibly grateful at the same time that he created a plan whereby justice can be satisfied even while mercy intercedes. But did you catch the all-important phrase in verse 13? The plan of redemption, for it not to bump up against justice, or destroy justice, and in the process destroy the character of God, it had to be brought about on conditions of repentance. That's the key. Those are the conditions. This is only going to work on one condition. Again, it's like the laws of nature. This metal tube that weighs so much more than air is somehow going to stay afloat in the air, but only if we keep certain conditions oh, sure, we can turn off the human heart and work on it and do all these things and then crank it back up again. What? Well, yeah, it sounds crazy. But as long as we keep certain conditions, it'll work. If you say so. No, no, guaranteed. Scientific fact. Well, what are the conditions then? Well, is there a way around God's justice? Well, it's not, that doesn't have to be around it. It can be straight through it and we can still be preserved We can still be redeemed. We can still be forgiven. Well, that doesn't sound just. Justice says, I get what I deserve. Oh, well, yeah, it sounds complicated. But it works under certain conditions. Well, what are the conditions? The conditions of repentance. So hold on to that phrase as we go through the rest of this chapter. Verse 14, thus we see that all mankind were fallen. That is the fall element he's already taught us. They were in the grasp of justice. See, there's some strong language when it comes to justice. Grasp in 14, demands in 24. Yea, the justice of God consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. There's nothing he could do about that on his own, or it wouldn't have been just. He would have been sinning against self, making his own character negotiable. Verse 15, now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. So this is part of those conditions of repentance. How are we going to insert mercy into this plan of justice? Oh, through the atonement. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. It's as if Jesus is saying, Father, I will go to earth. I will appease the demands of justice. I will pay the infinite price, infinite and eternal, the life of a God, one who can answer the ends of the law because he's met all of its requirements. And having done so, you will have proven your justice and provided for mercy all at the same time. Part of Christ's incredible condescension was not just the gift he gave to us of his grace, but in a way, the gift he gave to his Father, saying, Father, you can be as just as I know you to be and as merciful as I know you to be. You can be both. 
because of my atonement. No wonder the Father prepared the Son for this from before the foundation of the world. Whom shall I send, he asked. Here am I, send me. This is the professor that demands that his students master the material because you cannot function in the world until you've mastered it. Not only would it be unjust of that professor to pass everyone unprepared, but it would be incredibly unmerciful to all the people that those unprepared graduates would be sent out to. Think of med school, for example. Let's stick with President Nelson's line of work. Can you imagine the dean of a medical school just passing everybody to be merciful? Well, that's unjust, first of all, but it's unmerciful to everyone else that those doctors, quote-unquote, will be working on. They did not use their probationary slash preparatory state at all. But at the same time, the professor loves all of these medical school students. He wants them to pass. So how do I balance justice and mercy? How can I be both? I can demand that you master the material. And I can offer you all the retakes and tutoring that you could possibly need. Those are the conditions of repentance. That is the atonement and the plan of redemption. Now, in 16, it revolves all around repentance. Those are the conditions that matter. Now, repentance could not come unto men except there were a punishment. Now, there's some interesting logic here, which also was eternal as the life of the soul should be, a fixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the life of the soul. So the punishment has to be eternal. It's like there's a wall, and you have to learn to pass through the door, to enter the gate. That's a word that Nephi uses. But if the wall ends at some point, if the punishment kind of just gives out, the separation between humanity and God isn't eternal, then, well, we just wait it out and just kind of go around the end. That's easy. I didn't have to learn how to pass through the gate. No, the punishment has to be as eternal as the life of the soul. It has to be a fixed opposite to the plan of happiness. There, there have to be these choices that we're making. This goes back to Lehi's explanation of agency in 2 Nephi 2, right? There must be an opposition in all things. There has to be good and evil. There has to be redemption and punishment. We've got to make some decisions here. Verse 17, now how could a man repent except he should sin? How could he sin if there was no law? And how could there be a law save there was a punishment? Now let's unpack the logic there. How could a man repent except he should sin? In other words, repentance presupposes sin. Next phrase, how could you sin if there's no law? So sin presupposes law. You seen how we're doing this? Our goal is repentance. Well, how do we help people move in that direction? Well, they'd have to have something to repent of. What do we call that? Oh, that's sin. Well, what constitutes sin? Well, a breaking of law. Oh, oh okay. So there's got to be law, and broken law is sin, and what overcomes sin is repentance. Gotcha. So law allows for sin, which allows for repentance. Repentance presupposes sin, which presupposes law. But what about that last line? How could there be a law, save there was a punishment? Okay, that's kind of what Corianton's concerned about, right? It's unjust of you to punish a sinner. Well, we've got a couple of possibilities here. We've been saying that the one presupposes the other. So did we just follow that logic? Does law presuppose punishment? Well, maybe, maybe not. If law presupposes punishment, then that would be punishment as the natural consequences of our acts. 
That means we're being punished by our sins. And the law is simply teaching us how to avoid those things. That would be the law as cautionary. It's like we know certain things cause other things. It's like a parent putting a rule down saying, kids, do not touch the hot stove. That law presupposes the punishment. You're going to get burned, not because you broke the law. No, it, it, with or without a law, you're going to get burned if you touch it. This is a natural consequence. You're being punished by your sin. The punishment is inherent in the act itself. Does that make sense? So the law is cautionary. It teaches us how to avoid the consequences of sin. That's saying repentance presupposes sin, sin presupposes law, and law presupposes punishment, natural consequences of things. That's one possibility. The other, and this is where we typically think of law, is that law doesn't presuppose punishment, it's that law establishes punishment. A lot of rules we deal with in life are that, like that. Punishment isn't inherent in the act. It comes after the act to keep you from committing it. These would be imposed consequences instead of naturally inherent ones. This is when we're punished for our sins rather than being punished by them. So in this case, law warns us against things that we might not naturally be afraid of. It's not an inherent consequence after all. It's just something that's doing damage that we don't even recognize or could lead to problems in the bigger picture that we don't quite understand. That is law as corrective instead of law as cautionary. We keep doing stuff not knowing that it's causing damage, so I need to have a punishment affixed to stop me from doing those things. Now, either way, punishment drives us to repent, and that's the goal. So law has to alert us to sin and warn us of punishment. That's what the law of God is for. At the end of the day, law changes the grounds of salvation because by nature, carnal, sensual, and devilish, right? We are unable to perfectly fulfill the law. So it's almost like here's these two tracks. There's the conditions of the law, justice, and the conditions of repentance, mercy. And I'm going to lay this one down and command you to keep the law, knowing full well that you will be unable to live it perfectly. And because the law wakes us up to our sinfulness, cautioning us against it, correcting us for it. But it does prove the point. I'm a sinner, and the law makes that painfully clear. So what's my only shot now? It's pointing me in the opposite track. Grace, faith, atonement, repentance. Those are the only conditions that are going to work for you. Well, guess what? They're the conditions that God prefers all along. Because strict obedience to law even supposing that we could pull it off, that would be an independent feat. I did that. I didn't need God. I didn't need his redemption. I was saved by obedience to law. Well, along that path, did I come to know Jesus? I didn't need him. And the purpose of life is to come to know God. That is life eternal, to know God and Jesus Christ. So even by laying out this track and commanding us to walk it, there are signposts all along that say, your only chance is the other track. In this interesting irony, God didn't give us repentance to help us keep the law. He gave us the law to help us recognize our need to repent. Now, please do not misunderstand me in terms of thinking that I'm condoning sin. This is the trap 
that people sometimes fall into in reading Paul. And Paul recognizes. That's why Paul keeps checking himself and his readers by saying, does this mean that we're supposed to sin so that grace can abound? God forbid. All of Paul's God forbid statements, the half dozen or so in throughout his letters, are to kind of check ourselves from taking his explanations beyond the point where they're safe. So we've got to be careful here. In no way am I saying, oh, chuck the law. That's kind of what Corianton was leaning towards back in 40 and 41 and 42. It's what led him to this sin, thinking it's all good. It would be unjust of God to condemn me. This is the only track there is. No, 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 no. This is the only track that works. But if you take it for granted, then it doesn't work anymore. Those aren't the conditions of repentance. So let me teach you law. This is one of the trickiest contraries to prove. We have to keep these two tracks in mind. That's why it's by grace that you're saved after all you can do. That's tricky and confusing too. Salvation is free and keep the commandments. Wait, huh? This is hard. This is, this is difficult, but we've got to wrap our minds around it. We sometimes chain ourselves to this track of law and obedience. But darn it, because of the fall, we're carnal, sensual, and devilish, and there's no hope for us. We cannot be reclaimed, and justice demands it. So God provides a Savior, a plan of redemption. Why? So Jesus can come over and fix everything and say, oh, no, no, okay, you're good now. You don't need me anymore, so now you can keep going. Or is it a matter of him coming over and saying, you know, everything you're doing over here, all that you're working on, is to reconcile your will to mine, so that when you come over to my track, the grace track, you can walk with me. Don't keep stiff-arming me or rejecting the grace that so fully I proffer you. But all this law is to let you know that you'll never complete the journey over here. It's to convince you that sooner or later, you're going to have to come unto Christ because only he can bring you home. That's holiness instead of just innocence. That's one of the other reasons the fall is fortunate. It wakes us up into the recognition that we've lost some altitude, but it was never the altitude of Eden that we were supposed to be satisfied with. That's mere innocence, and true holiness is what God is after. So if the fall sinks us into this pit to wake us up to realize that once Jesus drops the rope and says, grab on and I will pull you up, that's justification. But once we get to that level, the Lord can then say, do you know what these ropes are really for? They're for mountain climbing. So now that you've been justified, really what I'm after is sanctification. Do you trust me? Have you stopped trusting yourself that you're not that strong or wise after all, Corianton? That you need to counsel with your elder brother whose steadiness and faithfulness has been unfailing? We only have one elder brother that fits that description. Come to him. He will help you home. So again, as ironic as it may sound, God doesn't give us repentance to help us keep the law. He gives us the law to help us see our need for repentance. It's the conditions of repentance that we're after. Again, please do not misunderstand. I'm not saying this to avoid obedience. We saw that back in chapter 36. I'm going to teach you all about my mighty change of heart, my being born again, and let me bookend it with counsel, son, to keep the commandments so you can prosper in the land. 
Obedience is what you're learning over here. But because you didn't learn it the first time, this path doesn't get you to the end of the road. Only this one does. So learn to repent. Your failures to obey teach you how to repent. And it's your repentance that connects you to Christ in a way that only He can help you obey. And that's what He's wanted and what the Father has wanted all along. Verse 18, There was a punishment affixed, a just law given, and that law brought remorse of conscience unto men. And that's what He's after too. Admitting, I can't do it on my own. I have a remorseful conscience. Good. A broken heart and contrite spirit, I can work with that. And what was it that woke you up to that? The affixed punishment. And what woke you up to that? The just law. 19 and 20, he clarifies that. If there's no law given that has a punishment affixed, then would we be afraid to break the law? 20, he says it clearly. If there was no law given against sin, men would not be afraid to sin. So whether the law is cautionary or corrective, whether it's inherent or imposed, whether it presupposes punishment or establishes punishment, Nothing would warn us away from sin until it was too late. There's got to be law. And if that were the case, 21, if there was no law given, then what would happen if men sinned? Justice couldn't do anything about it. Mercy couldn't do anything about it. Neither one would have claim upon the creature. That's fascinating. Without the law, justice can't step in because technically the person didn't break any rules. It's like he's on home base, right? I haven't done anything wrong. I've got immunity, amnesty. Justice can make no demands on me. But at the same time, if there's no justice holding us to something, then mercy doesn't have anything to do. See, that's one of the ironies of relativism. We think that relativism is so merciful. But if there's nothing that we're being held to, then mercy doesn't have a chance to do anything at all. Relativism negates both possibilities. So without law and sin and punishment, justice would have no right to do anything, but mercy would have no opportunity to do anything. So now, instead of God being both just and merciful, he's neither just nor merciful. He has no right to do anything and no opportunity to do anything. So now the law is not just cautionary and corrective. Now the law is consequential. It provides those consequences. The guarantee of justice and the opportunity of mercy. 22, there is a law given, thank heaven and a punishment affixed. Thank heaven for that too, as scary as it sounds. And most importantly, a repentance granted. That's all part of this plan of redemption. That's part of the conditions of repentance. Now, repentance, mercy claimeth. It's almost like mercy and justice are standing there picking teams, and repentance comes forward, and mercy says, oh, dibs, I want that one on my side. Okay. Otherwise, what would justice have dibs on? Us. That's the law punishment track. It would claim the creature, those carnal, sensual, devilish creatures that we all are. It would execute the law. The law would inflict the punishment. That's what the justice track is all about. If that weren't the case, the works of justice would be destroyed and God would cease to be God. We couldn't trust him. But remember, if mercy called dibs on repentance, then that's the mercy track. Oh, so if I'm choosing the mercy track instead of the justice track, then I have to choose repentance too? Again, we have the two team captains. Mercy picked repentance first, star player. Justice picked law, and punishment always comes along with that. 
Those are like, they've been teammates since Little League. And here am I still. I always get picked last, darn it. And these two team captains looking me over. And Justice has every right to claim me. He owns that next draft pick. But I can claim the mercy side. I can pick a team. We call it free agency in sports, right? Well, I am a free agent. And I can exercise that agency to choose the mercy side, but only on conditions of repentance. I have to play with that other teammate. Repentance was, after all, picked first. So for us to claim mercy, then we have to also claim what mercy claimed, namely repentance. And we have to work within the conditions of repentance. Remember, the law makes us all sinners. It wakes us up to that reality. It told us who we really are. It holds the mirror up to us, saying this is God's expectation. This is what God is, perfect embodiment of law. We needed justice to show us what we're aiming for, God's own perfection. And it's there that we recognize how painfully we fall short. But that wakes us up to the need for Jesus. Maybe this is a simpler way to see it. Three verses. Matthew 5:48. What's he say? Be therefore perfect and our shoulders droop, right? There's no way I can pull that off. Second verse, 1 Nephi 3, 7. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. Well, even that one, the command to be therefore perfect? Yeah, all the things the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandment, including that one, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he hath commanded. Wait, so God has prepared a way for me to live the commandment of being perfect? Yes. In fact, God prepared the way because he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No one's going to be able to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Nobody's going to be able to match themselves in the mirror except by me. So when I command you to be perfect and promise I'll provide the way, I am the way that God is providing. So verse 3 the last few verses of Moroni chapter 10. How does the Book of Mormon end? That ye might be perfected in Christ. It's not just be therefore perfect. Pass through the way God has provided, and it's be therefore perfected in Christ. And guess what wakes us up to that reality? Our only hope? The law. It's the law that says you'll never be able to live Matthew 5.48 on your own. And you were never intended to. This life is a time to prepare to meet God by meeting Him all along life's way, learning of Him, taking His yoke upon you, becoming yoke partners, pulling together. Isn't that what Paul taught to the Romans? I love this verse in Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. So if you're under the law, it's talking to you. And yes, we're all under the law. But what's it saying? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's an amazing statement. The law is talking to whoever it's given to. That's you and me. And what does it say? It says to shut up. It says to stop your mouth. It says you're guilty before God. You have no leg to stand on. You stand on Him or you don't stand at all. Oh, but I'm going to get it next time. No, 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 stop. Oh, I just need one more chance. I almost got it. I'm almost perfect. Shut it. All of our 
rationalization, our excuses, our self-justification, the law of God says, shut it. It shuts every mouth by making us guilty before God. You understand a little bit better now why I said the atonement wasn't provided to help us live the law. Rather, primarily, the law was given to convince us of our need for the atonement. Yes, eventually these things will come together. We will learn obedience through the grace of God. But we have to come over to the grace of God to get it in the first place. He hasn't removed his requirement for perfection, but the law disabuses us of our flawed sense of adequacy that we can somehow pull off perfection on our own. It forces us through Christ to become perfected in Christ. Perfection is still the goal. Obedience is still the goal. But it'll never come on the justice track, the law track. It'll only come on the mercy track, the atonement track. It's like that story Elder Holland said. Sometimes we have to start driving down the wrong road so that quickly we realize that the other road is the only one that will get us home. It doesn't mean I chuck the law or chuck the rules. God forbid, Paul will say. There's rules on this road too. There are conditions over here, but they are the conditions of repentance rather than the conditions of perfect, unfailing, uninterrupted obedience. Now, back to Alma. Let's pick back up in verse 23. God ceaseth not to be God. He is justice personified. He is mercy personified. Mercy claimeth the penitent because it's only the penitent who are humble enough to claim repentance in return. And without claiming repentance, you'll never claim mercy because they play on the same team. Mercy cometh because of the atonement. That's on that track as well. The atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. So that's overcoming physical death for all. And the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God. That overcomes spiritual death for all. Thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works, according to the law and justice. So now we're starting to see how resurrection and restoration and judgment and justice and mercy all come together in the same conversation. This is an intense father to son episode, isn't it? And there, in God's presence... Resurrected and ready for judgment, 24 kicks in. Justice exercises all his demands. And simultaneously, paradoxically, mercy claims all which are her own. Everyone who has claimed her throughout their lives, the truly penitent, those are the ones who have done it. Notice he didn't say the truly obedient. Oh, they're working towards that. They're getting there but it's the truly penitent that are saved. Those are who mercy claims back in verse 23, because those are the ones that truly claimed mercy. 25, could it be any other way? Do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? Interesting word. We usually rob stuff that we don't want to pay for. We steal because we don't want to buy. Well, in this case, mercy cannot rob justice. What can it do instead? It can purchase what belongs to justice. It can purchase what justice possesses, namely the fallen creature, you and me. And what was that purchase price? An infinite and eternal cost. With Jesus bearing the receipts 
in both hands everywhere he goes. Each of us purchase price engraven upon the palms of his hands. Mercy does not rob justice because it doesn't have to. Mercy has paid justice in full. There's not one whit of robbery there. Or again, God would cease to be God. This is what balances his perfect character. That was his plan of redemption from the beginning. 26, and thus God bringeth about his great and eternal purposes. That's how he does it. Those purposes which were prepared from the foundation of the world. Thus cometh about the salvation and the redemption of men and also their destruction and misery. You still get to pick. The law of restoration is still in force. If you didn't pick the mercy track, the justice track is your only other option. And the law on that side guarantees the punishment. So this is how God accomplishes those great and eternal purposes, which Moses learns in chapter 1 are to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Immortality is the resurrection side. Eternal life, the kind of life that God lives, is overcoming spiritual death permanently not facing the second spiritual death based on our own sin because we've repented of it. We've filled the gap that God gave us for our probationary slash preparatory state. He filled it with grace to give us room to work and we fill it with repentance, with all the obedience and failure to obey and attempts to try again and commitments to be better and works to reconcile our will and being born of God and receiving his image in our countenance and having this mighty change of heart, all that time is spent on this so that we might receive immortality and eternal life. Those are the conditions of repentance. Look back at verse 12. Without it, there was no means to reclaim men from this fallen state. Remember what Alma said to Helaman back in chapter 37? that God works by means to bring to pass his eternal purposes, that by small and simple means are great things brought to pass? Well, there would be no means, nothing to work with, no way to accomplish it without the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the small and simple means that he's asking us to employ are the conditions of repentance exercising faith in Christ unto repentance, being baptized in the name of Christ unto repentance, seeking the Spirit's guidance to know what must be repented of, and the Spirit's assurance that repentance is having its desired effect upon us. Take this whole chapter and put it all together. What is required for mercy and justice to coexist and for mercy to overpower justice in the arm wrestle? To purchase from justice what it possesses without having to rob justice of it? Here's the quick list. What has to exist? In verse 11, there has to be a plan of redemption. From verse 13, there has to be repentance with all its conditions. In 15, the atonement is key. 16, there must be a punishment affixed. To 17, a law. 22, repeat several of them. Law, punishment, repentance. 23 repeats the atonement. 27 speaks of agency, of choosing for ourselves. We'll see that in a moment. Put those all together, and I think you start to see these two tracks line up before us. As if God and humanity were facing each other across this 
wide divide. From God's perspective, he looks at us and sees the plan of redemption. This is how they're going to come home. We look at him and we see the fall that's separating us from him. And as we try to approach, our agency presents us with two paths, two bridges across the chasm, so to speak. One is the bridge of justice and the other is the bridge of mercy. On that of justice lies the law and on that of mercy lies the atonement. Now God is the owner and builder of both bridges. From his perspective, looking at the plan of redemption, he provided both law and atonement because he is both justice and mercy personified. But from our angle, as viewed through the lens of the fall, when we get to that fork in the road, we see on path number one, the bridge of justice, punishment staring us in the face. And we see at the beginning of path number two, the bridge of mercy, repentance with all of its conditions. Now, both of those can seem a little daunting. You may feel scared about the punishment sign, but I may feel a little daunted or overwhelmed by the repentance sign. Maybe overconfident, I think, well, I think I can avoid punishment. I'll just keep the law. But as we go down that path, we see that not a single misstep is allowed on this bridge. Any misplaced footstep and you plummet to the ground below. And it's that punishment affixed to law, demanded by justice, that convinces us maybe I should try the other path after all. And so a little more humbly, with a little more penitence, we approach path number two and agree to the conditions of repentance. There will still be all kinds of things to learn, righteous reflexes to develop, a reconciled will, but there's wiggle room there. There's not just second chances, but as many chances as you need. It's not an automatic escalator. It's not just a moving sidewalk that gets you to the goal. That would be against the nature of God, who is also the designer of the bridge of justice. That would be robbery. But over here, I have time and tutoring. I have the grace of God. I have his mercy and his long suffering. I have hope for myself. So in 27, as I stand at the fork in the road, therefore, O oh my son, therefore, in, that, in other words, in light of everything I've taught you the past four chapters, the seriousness of your sin, the reality of the resurrection and the judgment that it promises, the restoration of reaping what we've sown, the justice of God making claim on anyone that mercy cannot claim in its place. Therefore, because of all that, whosoever will come, may come. The choice is yours. They may come and partake of the waters of life freely. Whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. You don't have to, but just know that in the last day it shall be restored unto him according to his deeds. You can drink the waters of life or drink the dregs of a bitter cup. You can eat the fruit of the tree of life. Or having sown weeds, you can reap chaff in the whirlwind. You'll reap whatever you've sown. You'll drink whatever you've drawn up. You'll eat the fruit of whatever tree you planted. He then says this in verse 29 and 30. And these are two of my favorite verses. What he teaches here is an example of what I call the Goldilocks zone. My kids roll their eyes at this. 
because I'm always talking about the Goldilocks zone. This safe middle ground where you've proven contraries. Not off on one extreme, too hot with justice, or off on the other extreme, too cold with mercy. It's what Alma talked about with Shiblon. You've got to be diligent and temperate at the same time. If you're only diligent, too hot, you scorch your investigators. Only temperate and you're too cold. You never fire anybody up to change. So how do we find this Goldilocks zone? Somewhere in the middle. Well, we do it by proving the contraries, taking both and not eliminating both, but rather combining the two. If you're trying to strike a balance on a balance beam, you don't avoid the extremes. You actually extend your arms as far out as you can. That's why tightrope walkers have that long pole. By combining the extremes, it helps me keep my balance. It's what allows me to stay in the middle of that tightrope, the middle of that straight and narrow path. Well, here's the Goldilocks zone when it comes to sin. And I love how this wonderful father concludes this conversation with this wayward son. He gives him hope. And this is how he does it. Verse 29, And now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more. I can't think of a better thing for a bishop to say at the end of an interview with someone who's come to confess. I can't think of a better thing for a parent to say to a child who's been struggling. Don't let these things trouble you anymore. Move forward. You've got a mission yet to perform, and you can do it. But then it's almost like he pulls back just a touch, because if Corianton isn't troubled at all, then why not commit it to sin again? I wasn't that troubled before. What do you think chapter 39 was for? 39 was to trouble him. To say, how, do you have any idea how serious is the sin that you just committed? I don't care how many hearts Isabel led away. No excuse for thee, my son. It's the third worst thing you could have done. And actually, God's number three is humanity's number one, typically. This is serious business. You better be troubled. If you're too cold, heat up. Well, now he's probably concerned, have I moved him too far in this direction? Or has he moved himself too far in this direction? Oh, great. Now it's over for me. If I'm going to reap what I've sown and I've sown the seeds of sin, forget it. Second spiritual death, here I come. So son, don't let these things trouble you. And then this tiny backpedal, well, let them trouble you a little. It says, let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. Such a beautiful way to phrase this. Don't let it trouble you so much that you don't think you can repent. But let it trouble you enough to remind you that you must repent. If you have too much trouble, you won't repent because you don't think you can. If you have too little trouble, you won't repent because you don't think you need to. You see, either way, what the adversary is after is push you to either extreme at the exclusion of the other and repentance stops. This is one occasion where Goldilocks has to find the right one of the three bears to hang out with. She's got to get it just right. And you can tell you've got it just right when you're repenting, when you're progressing, when you're moving forward. What's the easiest way to stay balanced on a bike so you're not falling off to one side or to the other? The easiest way is by moving forward. And that's how you can tell that you are balanced, because you are moving forward. You are progressing. You're repenting. In verse 30, he again explains how to do that. 
And it's by extending those arms to keep the balance. It's by proving the contraries, not limiting either one or both. Verse 30, O my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. That's what you've been doing, or at least trying to do. You've wanted it to be mercy alone, but that's robbery and that's not God. So don't deny the justice of God. Don't endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. That's his justice talking. But he can look upon us with love. That's his mercy talking. And they're both equally inherent within him. You have to allow both free reign and full reign. That's what he says in the next phrase. Do let the justice of God and his mercy and his long-suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility. Stick those arms out as far as you can reach them. Grab a hold of all of his justice. Grab a hold of all of his mercy. Let them both have full sway in your heart. His long-suffering, by the way, should reassure you throughout the process of trying to keep your balance. We spend our lives with tiny course corrections. Whenever I try to balance on something, my arms are always making tiny adjustments. And it's God's long suffering that allows me to. So hold on to that as well as you're reaching to give justice and mercy full sway. As it brings us down to the dust in humility, that can either be compelled humility, the humility of surrender on the justice, law, punishment track, or it can be chosen humility, the humility of gratitude on the mercy, grace, repentance track. God will have a humble people either way. And so in verse 31, he ends, And now, O my son, ye are called of God to preach the word unto this people. Get up, move forward. There's a bridge yet to cross. And I think you're going to choose the right one now. And better yet, you're going to help other people cross it too. My son, go thy way. Declare the word with truth and soberness. Be serious about this that thou mayest bring souls unto repentance. Help them cross the same bridge you must, that the great plan of mercy may have claim upon them, just like you want it to have claim on you. And may God grant unto you even according to my words. Amen. Son, this will be a chance for God to prove to you that he can take ashes and turn it into beauty. When you're best intentions to live a flawless life have gone up in smoke and the ash of those attempts is all that's left behind. Just come to the other track. Come to the other side. Offer it to Jesus with the broken heart and contrite spirit that accompanies it. Give it to him. He'll take it. It's one of those things that mercy claims. And as you claim repentance and live its conditions then his mercy will bring you home he will take that ash and convert it into something beautiful namely you i'm grateful for a god who wants to claim me mercifully if i will but claim the conditions of repentance may we find that proper balance may we aim for the goldilocks zone and be troubled just enough to repent.
that's the path that will bring us home.